Father, we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, have gathered once again. We came because we're hungry. We came because we need protecting. We came because we need shepherding. We came because, well, it's natural. We are bruised sheep, limping sheep, injured sheep, bleeding sheep. We are your mistreated sheep. The world has done to us what you said it would. They hated us because they hated you. We run now to you for security. We run to you for healing. We run to you for understanding. Stretch out your hands and mend us. Restore us. Soothe us. Give us proper perspective. Father, we will be fine if we know that we're in your hands. Oh, lover of our souls, let us read of the bleedings of your heart to us, the bleedings in the manger of your birth, in the garden of your agony, in the cross of your suffering, in the tomb of your resurrection, in the heaven of your intercession. Let us resist the hater of our souls, forsake his empty whispers, despise his evil allurements, defy his every advance. Let us revel in your redemption of our souls, our naughtiness and your righteousness, our iniquity and your divinity, our deformity and your beauty. Help us to see you as good and in control in today's exposition. Oh, we love your word. It is our delight. We gather to get under it. We did not gather to deny our sin. We gathered to confess our sin. Father, you ask for our hands that you might use them for your purpose. We gave them for a moment, then withdrew them, for the work was hard. You asked for our eyes to see needs around us. We closed them, for we did not want to see. You asked for our mouth that we might speak the gospel. We gave you a whisper that we might not be accused. You asked for our lives, that you would work through them. We gave you a small part that we might not get too involved. Lord, forgive us for our calculated efforts to serve you. Only when it is convenient for us to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those who make it easy to do so. Father, forgive us. Make us usable instruments that we may take seriously the meaning of your cross. This is our humble plea. Amen. We preach through books of the Bible at FFC, and we've been going through 1 Kings. 
This book is filled with kings and crowns and crazies. We began our journey in chapter 1 with who's got the kingdom, followed by the transition. Then, make a wish, any wish. House building, moving day, a building dedication, grand opening, gold and blood, the queen of Sheba, the peril of drift, then in chapter 12, one crown becomes two, a divided kingdom. Followed by, give me that man-made religion. That's where Jeroboam set up and worshipped a golden calf. Last week, the mill, the fall, the lion. Which leads us to today. Chapter 14, the crowns are crumbling. The crowns are crumbling. After today, only seven sermons left in the book. It's been a fruitful study for our souls. May God continue to build the church through the book. May he continue to reveal himself through the revelation. God gave his people a king. They had been begging for one. Saul reigned for 40 years. He was followed by David. What a king he was. He reigned for 40 years. He was followed by his son Solomon, who wrote Song of Solomon, most of Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. He reigned for 40 years. There was one crown at a time for 120 years until Solomon died. Then the kingdom split. We studied this in chapter 12. One crown becomes two. Jeroboam leads ten tribes in the north. They are called Israel. Rehoboam leads two tribes in the south. They are called Judah. We nicknamed Jeroboam Jerry and Rehoboam Ray. Chapter 14 will give us the conclusion of Jeroboam's story and the conclusion of Rehoboam's story. There are two crowns, and both will crumble today. The crumbling of Jeroboam's crown and the crumbling of Rehoboam's crown. Now you might ask, Kyle, what else is going on in this text? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's quite a bit. While the crowns are crumbling, there is also a dying child, a costume party, a blind prophet, Dogs and birds eating bodies, stolen gold, fake Gucci shoes, and a missing history book. And throughout all that craziness, God is revealing himself to you. I'm hoping you will see God more clearly after going through this text. And see yourself more clearly after going through this text. Here's the roadmap for where we are going. The crumbling of Jeroboam's crown, that's verses 1 through 20. The crumbling of Rehoboam's crown, that's verses 21 through 31. Eight ways God reveals himself in the crumbling, that is interspersed. The crumbling of Jeroboam's crown, the crumbling of Rehoboam's crown, eight ways God reveals himself in the crumbling. Now, I want to warn you, 
the crumbling of Jeroboam's crown, that will take 90% of our time. When I have preached for 45 minutes and I am still on this first point, I don't want you to worry. The, the second crumbling it happens much, much shorter, much faster. The eight ways God reveals himself in the crumbling, these eight ways are interspersed throughout the 31 verses. We will take them as they come to us in the text. So let's get after it. Verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. Even calf worshipers care for their kids. Jeroboam sits with his head buried in his hands. His wife is a wreck. She hasn't eaten in two days. Her boy is sick. This is more than a common cold, more than seasonal flu. This is a serious illness on the level of leukemia. The little bald boy is named Abijah. He lies on a bed, a sick bed. His parents fear a deathbed. Little Abijah is surrounded by brightly colored balloons, get well soon cards, and plush stuffed animals. Oh, and parents pacing around the bed desperately hoping for a cure. He's not hooked up to heart monitors or IVs. None of those medical advances existed in 900 B.C. These parents are collapsing under the weight of a child's illness. They feel like they're optionless, hopeless, all because the boy will soon be lifeless. His mother lay in a puddle of tears on the floor. The young boy is afforded the best medical care available in that day. His dad is the king. The St. Jude's Old Testament equivalent is caring for the child, but he's simply getting worse. The king is broken. Who cares about wearing a crown if you can't hug your kid? Jeroboam's eyes dart back and forth as his mind races to control the situation. Then suddenly, a light bulb moment. He's got it. Verse 2. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. The king's plot to cure the son is to visit the prophet. Desperate situations call for desperate measures. Prophets were commonly consulted on health issues. Arise from your puddle of tears. I've got a plan. Go to Shiloh. There's a little prophet's chamber there. Inside is a man with whom I have a history. He was actually the prophet who revealed to me I would be king. Honey, remember the story I told you? He took the North Face jacket and ripped it into 12 pieces and gave me 10, saying you will rule over 10 tribes. That's the same man. I've had no personal contact with him for years because, well, you know, 
He told me to honor Yahweh, and I built golden calves instead. I set up a church in Bethel. He wanted everyone to worship in Jerusalem. Here's what you need to do. Disguise yourself. Don't let the preacher know who you are. My religious reforms will not warrant a favorable, a favorable response from him. If he knows you are with me, he will not help us. Jeroboam wants Mrs. Jeroboam, his Egyptian princess, to disguise herself as a farmer's wife. You need a disguise. No one, including the prophet, can know you are the queen. No royal gown, no tiara, no entourage. You need to camouflage your royalty. Wear a peasant costume to conceal your identity. In other words, change clothes. Put on some sweatpants and a hoodie. Dark sunglasses and dirty sneakers. Now, FFC, the names of the boy and the prophet sound similar. Abijah, the boy. Ahijah, the prophet. Abijah is Jeroboam's son. Ahijah is God's prophet. Go talk to Ahijah about Abijah. The fact that Jerry wants his wife in camo shows his guilt. He knows he's rejected God and that the prophet would call him out. So he sends his wife on the trip. He isn't man enough to go. This reveals a guilty conscience. He can't face the prophet himself. He thought the only way to get a favorable result was to pretend to be someone else. Beloved, don't ever pretend to be something you are not when approaching God. Jerry gives the Mrs. more instructions in verse 3. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. He doesn't want Mrs. Jeroboam to bring extravagant items that may blow her cover. Rather, bring something a farmer's wife might bring. Some homemade bread, some chicken noodle soup, and a pan of brownies. A modest gift, a commoner's picnic basket. Paltry gifts compared to what a king would send. Don't bring the finest meats and the best aged wine. He will know something is up. Just bring some biscuits, a jug of honey, and a carton of milk. Now church, notice what the king has decided to do. He's bypassing the priest at Bethel to speak to the prophet. The king started a church in Bethel. Why not go to those pastors? Why not go to those unqualified priests? Well, because Jerry, more than anyone, knew that what was going on in Bethel was a farce. When he was in trouble, he did not turn to his own priests. He knew his man-made religion was a sham. He sought the divine. He went to the one with whom he knew communed with God. You know, it's funny how a sickness can often make a Christ hater 
suddenly call on Christ for healing. Suddenly use religious language and talk about praying. Eight ways God reveals himself in the crumbling. Here's the first. You can't, you can't desire God's intervention while despising his commandments. You can't desire God's intervention while despising his commandments. Jerry wants God's ear, but will not allow God to have his ear. Jerry appeals to the heart of God while, uh, while refusing to allow God to have his heart. Jerry wants the help of God in the emergencies of life, but not the rule of God over the course of life. Jerry runs to God when bad things happen. How many run to God when their marriage is in trouble? The job is lost. There is a health scare or an impending disaster or some financial crisis. They want the help of God in the emergencies of life, but not the rule of God over the course of life. Jeroboam never really turned to God. He turned to his own need to grasp control and he just dressed it up in religious language. Like some of you do. Stiff arm God's commands and welcome his rescue. If you only want God in the valleys of life, are you really one of his? If it takes a children's hospital to get you to leave the golden calves for a minute, are you so sure you will not return to them when you get the discharge from the hospital? Just because you run to God every time something goes wrong, that doesn't make you a Christian. That makes you a Jeroboam. You don't love the life giver. You love the good life. You don't love the Christ. You love being crisis free. Verse 4. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. There she goes, right there, in sweats and a hoodie, dark sunglasses and dirty sneakers. She went from lying in a puddle of tears to walking in a peasant's costume. And I used to think that Jerry was making his wife sin. But no, she is making herself sin. She is going along with this. She is choosing to deceive the prophet. In fact, these, these golden calves, that was a form of worship that came from Egypt. She was all up in that temple in Bethel raising her hands during songs of golden calf worship. So far, the plan is working perfectly. No one has recognized her on the 20-mile journey. The narrator gives us this little nugget of information that is quite striking. The prophet is basically blind. He suffered from failing eyesight. He's got a white stick and he bounces it around on the floor and touches the walls to make sure he doesn't run into things. Now just imagine the absurdity of this plan. Don't dress like a queen because the prophet will see your clothes and know who you are. 
The prophet can't see anything. He's blind as a bat. Hey, Ahijah, how many fingers am I holding up? He doesn't know. He can't see her hoodie or her dirty sneakers. Or can he? Verse 5. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. Ahijah could see more in his blindness than Jerry and the Mrs. could see in their sight. Hear me. Physical limitations do not limit the Holy Spirit's ability. God exposes her ruse in advance. He uncovers her pretense. He quickly dispenses of her games. Which leads us to this glorious second way God reveals himself in the crumbling. God is unmanipulable. You can't manipulate him. God is unmanipulable. You can't manipulate him. Jerry is trying to manipulate God into giving him what he wants, a healthy boy. Praise God that he is unmanipulable. God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. If you gave me this, I would be, I would be more capable of serving you. A family, more money, Larger influence, a nicer home. <laughs> Who do we think we are? God is not a tool in our hands to accomplish our agenda. Verse 6, but when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in the door, he said, <laughs> Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Apparently, nothing is wrong with the old man's hearing. He heard the sound of her feet. She starts to knock on the door, pulling her hoodie down and pushing her dark sunglasses up. Mrs. Jeroboam, come on in with your ratty clothes. Nice to see you, queen. This greeting must have shocked her. Here's what happened. She got exposed. Don't miss in the crumbling our third truth. God always sees past your disguises. God always sees past your disguises. They are useless. Jerry and Mrs. Jerry are guilty of doubting the omniscience of God. God knows how many hairs are on your head. A little hoodie isn't going to fool him. Hey friend, friend who is pretending you are what you're supposed to be in the home, why are you wearing that hoodie? Pretending you don't have a massive rage issue. Why do you pretend to be another? 
living a double life, talking one way with Christians and another way with non-Christians, why are you wearing those dark sunglasses? Wearing a mask of humility, but inside you are filled with pride. Why do you pretend to be another? You do not deceive the Most High God. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Have you adopted the way of Adam and Eve? Clothing yourself in deception when you approach God? It's the same old tactic, just new ways of doing it. They covered themselves in leaves. We cover ourselves in hoodies. Have you ever tried to deceive God? You may try. You will never succeed. God can see through your tinted windows. You may have fooled us. You may have fooled your family. But you will not fool the sovereign. Now I'm going to say something and I want you to fill it in your bones. There is no such thing as hidden sin. God sees past your cover-ups. He sees past your disguises. This week, I read Philip Ryken telling the story of Charles Spurgeon and the famous Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He recounted, a man from Newington had been converted under Spurgeon's preaching and started, started to attend the church there regularly. This was over his wife's strong objections. Yet she was curious to know exactly what her husband had been hearing in church. One Sunday evening in July of 1864, she decided to go and hear Mr. Spurgeon. Not wanting to be recognized, she wore a thick veil and a heavy shawl and sat in the back of the upper gallery. Having waited for her husband to leave home before her, she arrived a little late and was just entering the church when she heard Spurgeon announce the text. Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings. Needless to say, Spurgeon had the woman's full attention. In fact, she later claimed that the famous minister had pointed directly at her when he read the text. Later in the service, when Spurgeon told his congregation that God will search you out and unmask your true character, disguise yourself as you may, the woman knew that it was true. She heard the gospel, confessed her sins, and believed on Christ, thus receiving the saving cure that comes through the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus offers that same healing cure to everyone. If you bow to him, he will save you from the sickness that leads to everlasting death. You ask, Kyle, what would God think if I approached him as I am? If I didn't dress myself up? Dear friend, there is only one robe to wear when you approach God. It is not a robe of deception. It is a robe of righteousness. We wear the robes of Christ, not the robes of leaves. We are not Adam and Eve or Jeroboam and Mrs. Jeroboam. 
We are sinners who approach God with nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to his cross we cling. You can actually look at the whole Bible like getting dressed. Like clothing yourself. You can summarize God's unfolding redemptive story in the language of getting dressed. God creates and clothes us with purity. We sin and clothe ourselves with leaves. Christ dies to clothe us in his righteousness. God creates and clothes us with purity. We sin and clothe ourselves in leaves. Christ dies to clothe us in his righteousness. But, but I look bad. You come home, friend. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that those leaves are covering that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. Verse 7. Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel. Let's, let's pause here, church. This prophet originally predicted Jerry's rise to power. He now predicts his fall from power. This prophet says to Mrs. Jerry, you think you've been sent here to find out about your sick child? Oh, no. You have been sent here to find out about much more. I will send you back, Mrs. Jeroboam, as a messenger. And he will. He will send her back with unbearable news. Now, let's be clear. It is unbearable because they are still rejecting God. For the Christian, no news is unbearable. If you have the Lord, you can face anything and bear it. Psalm 112.7 He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. But Jerry's heart is not firm because he is not trusting in the Lord. Therefore, unbearable news. Now, in the prophet's oracle, we find this. Grace rehearsed, verses 7 and 8. Guilt rehearsed, verse 9. The rehearsal of grace will consist of God saying, I, 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 I. I did these things. Let me bring them back to your memory. The rehearsal of guilt consists of you, 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 you. You did all these things. Let me bring them back to your attention. First, let's rehearse the grace. Verse 7 again. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. He effectively says, I raised you up from obscurity. You were a nobody until I made you a somebody. God says, I brought you out of the gutter and made you a governor. I, I made you and you deserted me. I ripped the kingdom from the line of David and placed it in your hands. Then you spit on it. You were not like David, who was the paradigm of faithfulness. I gave you three privileges. I exalted you. 
I made you king, and I tore away the tribes and gave them to you. In the prophet's oracle, grace rehearsed, verses 7 and 8, guilt rehearsed, verse 9. But you have done evil above all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. I, 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 now you, 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 you. You met grace in the past with sin in the present. You responded in heinous ways to my gracious acts. You've fallen so short of my expectation. You made ten gods, alien gods. You, you racked up new records of evil. You have infuriated Yahweh. See, Jerry answered God's three gifts with these three evils. You out-eviled other kings. You made idols. You cast God behind your back. Verse 10. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off Jeroboam, I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Behold, this is a, a prophetic threat. Jerry is responsible for bringing on the anger of the Lord. I gave you three gifts. You responded with three evils. Now you will face three repercussions. First repercussion, I will destroy your house. The word harm is the same word for evil in verse 9. You did evil, so I will bring evil on your house. I'm bringing doom to your household. Disaster will strike. This is harsh language. I will burn it like a man burns dung. I will, I will make you like poo in the streets. In other words, your house smells and radical action is needed. You are a stench in God's nostrils. Yahweh reveals his disgust. Sin disqualifies Jerry from an enduring dynasty. Now, this house is not talking about the four walls Jerry sleeps within every night. It's not talking about the structure that houses his bed. It's talking about his dynasty. Every last male in his line will die. The, the words in the verse, every male, every male in verse 10 is literally in the Hebrew, he who urinates against the wall. I appreciate the translators showing propriety here. But then again, it just forces me to say it. They should have said it. That is the correct Hebrew translation. Anyway, this is nothing less than the end of Jeroboam's dynasty. A clean sweep of his house. Verse 11. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. God promised to give Jerry a sure house if he obeyed. But he didn't, so he received this prophetic oracle of doom. This is a wider tragedy. Doomsday for Jeroboam's line. Now, the text mentions dogs. Dogs were never pets in Israel. 
You never saw a dog on a leash. No one ever petted a dog's head or rubbed its belly. Dogs were wild, unfed scavengers. Dogs were the, were the raccoons of the ancient world. And these furry bandits will eat the bodies of Jeroboam's descendants who die in the city. Now, this verse may be good news for the dogs and the birds, free meals, but it's bad news for the king. It's graphic imagery of non-burial and mutilation. His sons will not receive the honor of a decent burial, which was a terrible humiliation for any Jew. The prophet tells Mrs. Jeroboam, verse 12, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Three repercussions. First repercussion, I will destroy your house. Second repercussion, your sick boy will die. This mother just found out she will never see her son alive again. The death of a child strikes deep in all of us. The only silver lining here is that the boy will be saved from the holocaust that will come to his family line. The child will not have to face a painful, horrifying death and the shame of not being buried like the other males in the family. But he will have to face immediate death. That bald boy, his hair will never grow back. He will never leave that sickbed. He will never run again. He will never kick a ball or belly laugh with his parents. The boy will die. Verse 13. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. There was only one bright spot, only one word of solace. The Bible, the, the boy, would be taken away from what would follow. God will remove him from the scene of history to preserve him from the scene of history. I am fully aware I am preaching to some parents who have lost a child. You paced around a hospital bed that was surrounded by brightly colored balloons, get well soon cards, and plush stuffed animals. You watched a child be hooked up to heart monitors and IVs. You were the mother lying in a puddle of tears on the floor. You were the husband who buried his head in his hands day after day in that hospital room. Could death be a grace for your child? like it was for this child? I am no prophet. I cannot tell. I can encourage you in the pain to worship, in the hurt to trust, in the mystery to rest. One theologian said, and I quote, mystery is not the absence of meaning but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. God sees sickness. Verse 5, he told the prophet, this couple has a sick son. You've lost a child? Freak accident? Baseball hit him in the temple and he's gone? She fell into a lake and drowned? He died in the womb? 
or at birth. You don't know God's mind with the death of a child. But you can trust his heart. Trust in the one who holds life and death. Some of God's dearest children have died while they were young. Now, I want to point out here that it appears that some work of grace in the boy began to flower. Something pleasing to the Lord, verse 13, was found in the child. If there is anything pleasing to God about the boy, it has to be faith. Hebrews 11.6 says it is impossible to please God without faith. This is the attesting mark of grace on the regenerate child. Charles Spurgeon said of this text, I have no doubt this child showed an early affection towards the unseen Jehovah and a distaste for the idols of his father's court. This boy shook with holy horror as his father worshipped the golden calf. God's electing love found this boy in the home of a pagan. God can send his effectual grace into any home at any time. Who would have thought he would find a true worshiper of Yahweh in the home of this Yahweh hater? Some of you Christians, you non-Christians are here because you're hungry. I'm not talking to you. But I'm talking to the other group. You antagonistic non-Christians. You antagonistic non-Christians who despise our God. You oppose him. I just want to say this. You watch him win to himself your very children. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, God receives the glory due his name. Imagine this. Something pleasing to the Lord in the home of Jeroboam. His father, a pagan worshiper. His mother, an Egyptian princess, major idolater. A good seed may be growing in a weed-infested field. There in the midst of tares is God's wheat. God's electing love sometimes has the objects of its choice in strange places. Oh, the precious gem amongst dirty gravel. Oh, the shining pearl amidst thick mud. God has saved many a child who grew up with a drunkard. God has saved many a child whose mother was a prostitute. God has saved many a child who lived among dirty needles and white powdered spoons. Holy children sometimes grow up in unholy families. Christ followers are sometimes reared in Christ-hating homes. Well, we went down quite the applicational rabbit hole there. We stopped the prophet in the middle of his oracle. Let's allow the man to finish his paragraph. He's speaking to Mrs. Jeroboam. Jerry doesn't know what the prophet is saying until his wife tells him later. He's not in on anything that you've just witnessed. He's been by the bedside of his boy the whole time. She isn't home yet. She's still scribbling, doing shorthand, taking all of this down so she can relay it to her hubby when she gets home. Verse 14, moreover, the Lord 
will raise up for himself a king of, over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made, they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin. We now find the agent of the first repercussion. A, a king will arise and wipe out Jeroboam's family. Now this will happen next week in our text. He will obliterate them off the map. But the prophet's prophetic gaze turns finally to the distant future. First repercussion, I will destroy your house. Second repercussion, your sick boy will die. Third repercussion, your people will be exiled from the land. God has already set in motion the forces that would eventually destroy the nation. It doesn't happen until 2 Kings 17, but it will happen. The Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. This is a common metaphor for instability. Like the wind smacks a lone reed, God says, so I will smack the nation. Israel will bend like reeds in a storm. It appears the fate of the nation is sealed. God's ordaining an exile. This long-range prediction of captivity is yet to come. The whole nation will go into servitude, all of them POWs. God will wash his hands of Israel. This scattering is the undoing of the gathering. Beloved, your sin, just like Jerry's, affects the community. No sin has solo repercussions. It always has community repercussions. Jerry's sin brought consequences to the whole northern kingdom. The northern tribes will be carried off into exile in 722 BC. First repercussion, I will destroy your house. That will happen in less than five years. Second repercussion, your sick child will die. That will happen in less than five hours. Third repercussion, your people will be exiled from the land that will happen in less than five centuries. In fact, only 200 years. Verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah, the prophet. The first fulfillment begins to play out. Jeroboam and his wife had a palace in Shechem. This house in the text is in Terzah. So this was either a summer home or maybe they moved their royal residence at some times. As she passes over the doorway, the child passes from life into death. She opens the door and takes one step. The boy takes his last breath. They give him a funeral suited for a crown prince because that's what he was. The prince died. The first fulfillment serves as a pledge that the others will be completed. If this prophecy came true, the rest are sure to follow. This is how the crown will crumble. Verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, 
reigned in his place. This is the conclusion of Jerry's story. I like the narrator's way of recording this. If you want to know what Jeroboam did in other areas, you can read it in other places, but I'm not spilling any ink over it. He has little interest beyond what he chose to record. He did not report the wars of Jeroboam because that pales in comparison to his idolatry. We know Jeroboam's other son's reign, Nadab, will be temporary because God will destroy Jerry's house, all the mills. I like books, and I like the mention of this lost history book. It was in the libraries of the original readers. It is lost for us. No copy remains. That's okay. We have in our hands what God wanted us to know about Jeroboam's reign. Which leads us to our fourth revelation. Jeroboam, not his son, was the real sick one. A cure for sin is more important than a cure for sickness. Jerry spent the equivalent of thousands to seek a cure for sickness without ever giving fault for the cure of his sin. All throughout the New Testament, moms and dads brought their sick children to Jesus. They allowed the child's sickness to bring them to Christ. On two different occasions, John 4, a high official asked Jesus to come and heal his son. Jesus did from a distance. Then the case of Jairus' daughter, Jesus went to the deathbed and healed her. Actually brought her back to life. The point, the child's struggle brought the parents to Jesus. A sick child has led many a pagan parent to the Savior. Sadly, in our story, Jerry's son's physical sickness did not awaken him to his spiritual sickness. Dear friend, you are sick with sin. And if you die in your sin, you will spend eternity in hell. How much do I have to hate you to believe that and not tell you? This leads us to our fifth revelation. Tragedy can callous your heart instead of soften your heart. You control the effects. Tragedy can callous your heart instead of soften your heart. You, you control the effects. King David had an infant who became sick and the infant died and it softened him. It brought him to God. It seemed the very opposite effect happened with Jerry. He persisted in his assault on God's commands. In those angst-ridden moments, he allowed it to further harden his heart toward God. Did you notice that the wife, the mother, Mrs. Jeroboam, never talks in the story? She stays silent. Most scholars conclude she's silent bitter. Have you ever had to carry a child to the grave? Will you allow that tragedy to soften you or harden you? Will you be a King David or will you be a King Jeroboam? Kyle, God took my child and I am angry with him. I reject him. I will yell at him. Beloved, I say this kindly. I say this from a pastor's heart. Nothing grants you permission to rail 
against a holy God. The crumbling of Jeroboam's crown. That's point number one. Don't fret, friends. The chunk of our time was spent on that one. We will fly through the second crumbling. Jeroboam's crown. Notice, Jeroboam's crown crumbles. Now, let us quickly watch Rehoboam's crown crumble. Verse 21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother, mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. Jerusalem's special status is highlighted here. God put his name on it. Everything so far has centered in Terza. There was trouble in Terza. Everything from here on out will center in Jerusalem. There's junk in Jerusalem. Verse 22. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. The narrator's list of Ray's pagan developments. Stunning. Altars to pagan deities on hilltops. Wooden representations of false gods. Pillars, not part of some other structure to support it. These were places of worship. Raised stones, various heights, all idolatry. Evil and its expressions dotted the landscape. God's country didn't look like God had moved in. It looked like Canaanite country. Ray failed to exterminate these idolatrous practices. How these people worshipped their foreign gods was through male prostitution. It was severely abominable to Yahweh. They were united to those deities by having sexual relations with the temple prostitutes. And the, and the Judites would have, several, would have sexual relations with these men because they believed it would make their land fertile. They are now indistinguishable from the Canaanites. Ray was passive toward evil and it angered God. He normalized these abominable acts. The depth of depravity is shocking. Your passivity toward abomination makes God fume. Eight ways God reveals himself in the crumbling. Here's the sixth. God possesses a love for you that will not tolerate rivals. God possesses a love for you that will not tolerate rivals. He is a jealous God. He will settle for nothing less than your full worship. He rightly demands your total affection, total allegiance. Their sin disgusts God. And he says, I will vomit you out of the land. God's jealousy is both terrifying and comforting. Some of you educated non-Christians. You ask, Kyle, is your God a dysfunctional deity that needs therapy to deal with his irrational rage? No. He's rightly possessive. 
Dale Ralph Davis quips, the, this intolerant God will not negotiate on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 25, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jeroboam. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. The Lord was patient with Ray for five years, but he eventually sends Egypt. Shishak, king of Egypt, entered Judea with a huge army and plundered the temple. Within five years, Ray so weakened Judah's defense that it made this possible. And this is not the final judgment. This is merely the initial blow. Jerusalem was severely looted. Shishak took all the golden shields stored in the armory. Remember these 300 shields mentioned back in chapter 10? It was the removal of accumulated treasure. It fiscally bankrupted them. How did Ray respond? Verse 27. And King Rehoboam made in their places shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And so often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. The gold shields were lost because of sin and replaced by cheap substitutes. Ray made bronze shields and replaced them. Not as grand, not as expensive, but they look similar. Fake gold. Deceiving the people like they are still a powerhouse. All Ray was worried about was appearances. Keeping up appearances. He's walking around in knockoff Gucci shoes. I still got bling. See, the, king isn't, the queen isn't the only one trying to disguise reality. Ray does it too. He is disguising the temple, holding up a thin veil that they are just as secure as they were under the reign of his father Solomon. Eight ways God reveals himself in the crumbling. Here's the seventh. God is not impressed by your ability to keep up appearances. God is not impressed by your ability to keep up appearances. You want to make sure you look the part. God wants you to deal with the problem. It's instinctive to us to pretend like we are put together. Posting on social media, all good over here, look at the shoes. All is not good in your heart, stop fronting. You keep up appearances, you go through the motions, you have this uncanny ability to make sure everything looks good to your friends. You need to stop covering the repercussions of your sin and admit your relationship with God is not what you've made it out to be. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. And thank God he doesn't. The whole book of Kings tells you, Christian, over and over again, he will not allow you to sin successfully. This should be your prayer. God, do not allow me to continue in sin. Take the treasures, take the gold shields, take my health, take my house. Do not allow me to sin successfully. Second Chronicles 12 reveals this Egyptian invasion temporarily brought Judah back to their senses 
And so God stayed the hand of the king of Egypt. As it turns out, their repentance didn't last. A few centuries later, then, God will send Babylon to finish the job. Verse 29. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. There was war. You history buffs. You want to hear more about these border skirmishes? You like to read war books and watch war documentaries? Again, the narrator is not concerned mainly with battles and building programs, but godliness. The Bible itself tells us it is highly selective. The conclusion of Rehoboam's story, verse 31. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, and Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. Ray is given an honorable burial. Ray suffers for his sin, but not the same as Jerry. In fact, regarding his lineage and his house, it's the exact opposite. Did you notice that Ray experiences the reverse? His house will live on. His male descendants will continue to reproduce. God's grace is the only reason his kingdom continues at all. And it continues because God is sending another king through that line. Through the line of David, through the line of Rehoboam. It's a glorious truth which comes as an enormous relief. Eight ways God reveals himself in the crumbling. Here's the eighth and the final one. God will protect his plan from his sinful people. God will protect his plan from his sinful people. There's an emphasis on the king's sons. It's obvious and it's a stark contrast. You must notice that Rehoboam committed the same sin as Jeroboam. But Ray's son doesn't die. His son reigns. Notice, Ray's son, notice, notice the one who takes his spot, the son who rules after Ray. It says his name is Abijam. That, that's actually a variant. In Chronicles, the name is, is Abijah, not Abijam. Same name, same person, variant spelling. Did you catch it? Two sons with the same name. Two sons. One Jeroboam's, one Rehoboam's. Both named Abijah. One dead, one wearing the crown. This points us forward to another son who will both die and wear a crown. Matthew 1.7 gives the genealogy of Jesus and it says, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, spelled the exact same way, Abijah. From Solomon came Rehoboam, from Rehoboam came Abijah, from Abijah eventually will come Jesus. And that is always the struggle with these passages. In the craziness, you must remember the Christ. It's all leading to Christ. The son who will die and wear the crown. The final Abijah. 
the one to whom these two sons point. He will both die leaving his mother in a puddle of tears and wear a crown bringing glory to his father. Two sons in the story both named Abijah. One dead and one, as we will see, ruling but doing it sinfully. We need another son. In God's unfolding story, he's coming to Bethlehem. Father, this text got all up in our business in the best way possible. Thank you for it. Forgive us for doubting your omniscience. Save our children. Remove our disguises. Give us Christ. Amen.